0: It certainly is my pleasure on behalf of the English Speaking Union and the Boston Athenaeum to introduce Dr. Emmeline Murphy. It has also been my pleasure to have read her book, which you see up there, The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Uh, Her book is Learning, Graced by Wit, and it brings a new dimension uh, to a language that I've spoken all my life. Uh, Dr. Murphy is an American, born in upstate New York, studied linguistics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and at the University of Illinois. After teaching in South Africa and Texas, both of which speak a kind of English, she moved to the University of Sussex in Brighton, England. Uh, She writes the award-winning blog, Separated by a Common Language, and as at-linguist, and what is language without puns, uh, she treats the U.S.-U.K. difference of the day. Uh, it is indeed a great pleasure. Please welcome Lynn Murphy.
1: Wow, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to be here in this beautiful building and to be working with the English-speaking union, whose charitable works um increasing oracy amongst young people is something I really, really admire. Um, So yes, I've written a book. It's very big up there. And it's called The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Um, Unless you live outside North America. In which case, it's called The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between British and American English. Because I thought everybody should be allowed to go first sometimes. Um, and so we can start out by thinking about these two Englishes, or even many more Englishes than that. There are Englishes within the Englishes. But um, if we think about how different are they really, right? We we watch each other's television programs. We read each other's books. We you know go on holiday or on vacation um, to each other's countries. Um, how different can they really be? And. I'm very grateful that I moved to England because now I have a phrase for explaining how different they can be. They are the difference. How different are they? As long as a piece of string. It's one of my favourite British expressions. Depends, you know. It depends, right? <laughs> um, depends where you cut it. Depends where you where you lay it down. Um, so, ooh. so. When we think about the differences between British and American English, we can we often think about the differences that everybody knows about, how many U's are in a book, how many you know, what, whether we have centre with an E R or an R E. Um, but when you start looking at these systems, you start seeing there are a lot of things you might not know about. So you know that colour is spelt differently, but do you know that mollusk <laughs> is spelt differently? Um, you know that if a British person says football, they're talking about soccer, but do you know what they're talking about if they ask for a Z bed? They're asking for what I would call a rollaway bed. Um, so there are all sorts of differences that, that we might not know about going into a situation. We'll learn those quickly. What's more tricky is the ones that, where we've got the same words but different meanings, right? So we we all know about biscuits. So what the British called biscuits is a subset of what Americans would call cookies. What Americans call biscuits cannot be found outside of the continental US. Um, But there are other meanings that we don't even know we're miscommunicating with. So for instance, I'm taking a very A very specific example here. If you order a sirloin steak in Britain, you will be getting a different cut of meat than if you ordered a sirloin steak in Britain. So, I can can point perhaps. So there's your American, or there's your British sirloin. There's your American sirloin. It's much more specialized. You're getting a worse piece of meat. Um, If if you order one in Britain. And then continuing on, how do we count these differences? So one difference, if you read a lot of British prose that hasn't been um, copy edited into American, you'll know that um, how we treat uh, quotations in writing is different. So British style prefers a single quotation mark, prefers to put the uh, um, sentence punctuation outside the quotation mark, American does it differently. But then do we count things like this? So I have over 400 Facebook friends for the express purpose of seeing how many commas I get on my birthday, (laughs) right? So, So if you say happy birthday, Lynn, I have counted. It is twice as likely that you are British. And if you say happy birthday, comma, Lynn, it's twice as likely that you are American. Now, so that's a trend rather than a, they do it this way and we do it that way. Do we count that as a difference or not? Um, so our piece of string is getting thready and tangled. Um, and the last one I'll point out is even when we have the same words, the same dictionary definitions, what we do with them is often very different. So you'll probably not be surprised to find out that the British say sorry four times as much as Americans do. You might be surprised to find out that Americans say thanks or thank you twice as much as British people do. So it's not that we're less polite. We're just polite in a different way. Um, but, But you know, so that one we sort of know about. It's hard to explain, but we know about it. Um, but then there are other ones that, this is the one that gets my students, so, so the American exchange students come over to Britain and at some point during the semester they'll say to me, why does everybody worry about me so much? And I'll be, why? And they keep asking if I'm all right. <laughs> is there something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? And it's, no, that's just, if you're passing someone on a corridor, that's how you say hello, all right? Right. And how do you respond to "all right um. all right, <laughs> right. Um, so so that we 've got the same word. you might not like the spelling, but that 's how people spell it when they use it that way, um, but we still find these ways where we 're not quite communicating okay, so that piece of string, as i say it 's long, it gets thready at points, it gets knotted at points it 's really, really hard to count. But happily for me, I get to do something with it. So this is the blog that was mentioned in the um, introductions. Um, I've been writing this blog since 2006. I have to admit that since becoming a parent, and that was uh, 11 whole years ago, my my blog output has slowed down considerably. Um, But this is a little selection here of of things that I've written about that have to do with cooking and food. Um, So, you know, Why can Americans say that a knife is dull when British people cannot? Um, What kind of flour would you use if you needed to make bread? You're not going to find bread flour on on, uh, British shelves. You'll have to look for the strong flour. Why does blackcurrant have a space in America and not in Britain? And this one I loved because the the whole reason I love writing this blog, living in a different country, writing this book was that I get to learn so much. If you're studying language, you, you study the world. Um, and so because of this I got to learn that Americans are far less familiar with black currents than British people are because they were illegal here for a very long time because they carried a fungus. And so they never got familiar enough to be a closed up compound without a space. So, you know, it's fun to learn about these things. And since I couldn't keep up with um, doing the blog as much as I would like to, I did start doing a tweet. So I started out in 2008 doing a tweet every day of a difference of the day between British and American English. Now I'm down to um, five days a week. I decided I deserved weekends off. Um, today's difference of the day, inspired by Boston, was row houses versus terraced houses. Um, but um, one, of my, one of the ones that I think is most important is the top one there um, from a pastime where I did coffee cake. American coffee cake is a beautiful, moist, cinnamony, lovely thing you have with coffee And British coffee cake is is cake that's flavored with coffee. (laughs) So you get an entirely different thing. You might drink it, I don't know if you'd want to drink coffee cake with your tea, I I don't know, but um, see, the differences are enough that I've been doing that since 2008, at least five days a week, and I hardly ever repeat myself. Um, so, in, in and that is a point of pride for me. I will check and see: did I do this one before? I'm not doing it again. We've got all those differences without me even going on into the regionalisms, right, in either country. Although I accidentally sometimes find out that some of the things that I claim are American are actually regionalisms from where I'm from, but, um, So this is me having breakfast. You can see my uh, shadow, my reflection there. I was having breakfast in Newcastle last year and I was offered bacon statis. Okay, a bacon stati or sausage stati or whatever. Britain, in America, it's what do you call pop or soda, right? That's the big linguistic divide. In Britain, it's what do you call a bread roll. Um, So it could be a stati, it could be a bap, it could be a a cob, it could be all sorts of things. Um, In Newcastle it's a stati. Um, And once you've eaten your stati, you can Instagram your scran, which is to say your nosh, your your snack, your food. Um, So all these differences, and yet we mostly do communicate all right, right? Until you try to read the traffic signs. (laughs) laugh whenever I pass the sign it's near my house and it's near a uh, it's next to a fire station and does anybody know what a rising bollard is yeah good do you have rising bollards in Boston ah there you go no okay that rises up out of the ground to try to stab your car um, if you try to go down the fire fire lane yeah have you got them in Harvard Square We will get to that. Um, Okay, but that was something that that was completely new to me when I I moved there. Um, So why are we so different? Well, obviously we're far apart, okay? So when the colonists came over, they were separated from the mother country by an ocean. If you think that for a very long time, the dialect boundary between people who said over here and people who said over here was the Connecticut River. Just a little river keeping people from saying one thing or another. And then you multiply that by you know, the size of an ocean. There's a lot of distance that's going to keep those two things apart. But difference, distance can't be enough because Australia's twice as far away and yet they talk more like the British than Americans do. So of course the other answer is time. We had a 150 year head start on making our English different from from what the Australians had. And so we've had more time, more time for language to change both in Britain and in America to make us more different than other Englishes. Um, but also um, the English that was being spoken Back then, in the 18th century, in the 17th century, was a lot more different than from now than the English that that was taken to the later colonies. So back then, they were speaking early modern English. We have a different name for the English that the earliest colonists were speaking, and because it was it was significantly different from from what came later. So the people who are going to um, Australia in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they were speaking an English that was very much like the English that's speak, spoken in Britain now. So we had a lot of time to change. We had a lot of English to change. This is, this is, these are some of the things that happen. So back in the early days, when, um, when the colonists were first starting to come over, there were a lot more synonyms in England than there might be now because for two reasons. One is sort of technological reasons. There were a lot of words for punctuation at that point because nobody had needed to talk about it much before. Right? Once printing presses became widespread and universal schooling came in, then people needed to talk about punctuation with each other and, and these words sorted themselves out. And as one of my favorite linguists says, Language abhors synonyms, like nature abhors a vacuum. If you've got two words for the same thing, either one will die out, and that's what happened with period and full stop. In America, full stop died, it's come back. But it's died, and in Britain, period died, because you only needed one word for for one thing, even though there were two to start out with. There were actually more than two. Um, Or if you look at something like cock versus rooster, where um, rooster was a a dialectal word in England, which made good in America. People used it more and more because they decided to stop saying the other word for some reason. Um, But, but, you know, so that dialectal word has been forgotten in Kent, but nowadays it it lives on in American English. And so this is why I often like to say, you know, when I'm speaking to British audiences, You know, but just think of us as as your sort of time capsule. You know, something like the subjunctive mood, died in England, went to America, lived in America, has gone back to England. It's like like they're reintroducing the beavers to Scotland. It's the same thing. (laughs) So, we've got a nice little time capsule here. Another reason why the amount of time that we've been separated matters is because a lot of stuff happened since 1776, or whenever we want to count from. So pretty much anything that was invented between the War of 1812 and the Second World War, you can bet there's going to be some differences in ways we talk about them, because we didn't have an easy way to share those words. So if you look at something like driving, um, you know, you've got the boot versus the trunk, the indicator versus the turn signal, the windscreen versus the windshield, the bonnet versus the hood, the wing versus the fender, the motorway versus the highway, the tire spelt two different ways. Um, But then you've got the door, right? And you've got the door because we had doors before we had cars, so we didn't need a new word. And you've got the windows and the grass, right? So those are the words we share in common, the words that we have from back in the old days when there was just windows and doors and grass. Things evolve differently too, and that affects our language. So if you think back to, you know, how the Stuarts dress versus how the Windsor's dress, um, you know, they didn't need a word for trousers versus pants back then because nobody was wearing them yet. Um, But uh, what we've got, you know, if you've, tried to shop for clothes in Britain you'll know well a lot of words are different in clothing um, it's not that people before then didn't have clothing it was that the clothing that they had was really different so I'm just going to take one example off this page of you know we call all sorts of different things di- different the same thing but differently um, the the case of jumper there which that's an old word that referred to a sort of loose thing that you wore over your top, over your other clothes. And that's how it's evolved in both England and America, just to refer to different things that go over other clothes. So in, in Britain it became what you call a knitted um, thing that goes over clothes, and, and in America it's what you called my school uniform. <laughs> Which, Okay. Okay. I, it's, I always want to turn and look. Thank you. Um, but there's another reason why America is a more different English than some other English, and that English is, and that is the fact that we rejected Britain. I say we. I wasn't there, but um, but you know. the the politics between America and Britain were a different kind of complicated. Um, And so after the fight for independence, we had lessened immigration from Britain, but we also, and so less contact with British English, but we also had a bout of linguistic patriotism. That's a little picture of Noah Webster up there. So Webster is the reason why we spell color without a U and censor with an ER, because he felt very strongly that a new nation needed a new standard of English. That U in color, that's coming from the French arist- you know, French-blooded aristocrats of England. We don't need that U. We can, we can spell it more like it sounds. So because of that, we've got um, some differences. And then later, because there were, we had more immigration from elsewhere and manifest destiny and all that moved westward, the country got physically further away from Britain as its frontier moved westward. So people on the Indiana frontier, they didn't know what people in London were saying or how they were saying it. They had a lot less contact with that sort of thing. So we had more distance, and then we had more people from elsewhere, more people who were coming to America and learning English as their second language, and what they wanted to speak like was not the people back in England, but the people who they were living next to in America. So all those things make us so different. But back in the day, in uh, the 18th century, the early 19th century, when people were worrying about whether we should have a different English or a similar English. We had lots of people writing things. This is um, Noah Webster here writing that um, because of the way that the English will change in North America, it will come to be as different from the language, the future language of England as the modern Dutch, Danish, Swedish are from German or from one another. Okay, maybe it's okay for dutch and da- or Swedish and Danish because they watch each other's television programs too, but certainly we're not as different as Swedish and German or Swedish and Dutch. Um, similarly, Benjamin Franklin thought we'd be as different as Portuguese and Spanish. John Pickering, um, who wrote one of the early dictionaries of Americanisms, he thought that within a hundred years, Americans would not be able to read the great literature of Britain of England. Um, and that didn't happen, okay? Why didn't that happen? Well, of course, the distances started getting smaller. Also, if you think back to, you know, when Latin was going, ac- not, I don't actually think any of you are old enough to think back to when Latin was going across Europe, but when Latin was going across Europe and becoming Spanish and Portuguese, that was not a standardized language yet, whereas English had undergone significant standardization. We had a standard English as well as dialectal Englishes. We had the printing press. We had English going back and forth very easily in printed form. And then the distances started getting smaller with steamships and then airplanes and telegrams and telephones and emails. So our, our English had a lot of opportunity to stay connected, but it also stayed particularly connected because some people didn't want to have a separate English Some people wanted to stay very close to England. And here's where Boston comes in, right? This was the sign that greeted me at Logan Airport today, (laughs) um, or the other day. Um, So in Boston, you had um, people who very much wanted to to keep the sort of cachet of of British English, of upper-class British English. Um, In Harvard in the 19th century, students were given elocution lessons in the college pronunciation, which sounded a lot more British than, you know, maybe American. Um, Worcester's Dictionary, centered in Boston, tried to keep the English spellings and fought a dictionary war with Webster over that. Mostly Webster fought it, but Webster won. Um, and so we have always had a, a serious amount of anglophilia in parts of America that have, has also kept us trying to, to be a little bit closer together. Sorry. Okay, so those, that's how we're different. So there is an American English and a British English, or man, many American Englishes and many British Englishes. Um, but now I wanna go to the other parts of the subtitle, The Love, hate relationship. And as I've already started to indicate, a lot of the love goes in one direction, and a lot of the hatred goes in another direction. So in America, you can easily find headlines like these. The top 100 most beautiful British slang words. How often do you see the word beautiful in slang together? mostly when British is involved, or 17 British slang terms Americans should start using immediately. They're better than our words. Um, Meanwhile in the UK, you get headlines like this. (laughs) 41 things the Americans say wrong. Okay, it's wrong to call that a biscuit. Um, And so I I look at this, and I always have a a harder time talking to American audiences than British audiences because I know exactly what the British audiences think about American English because they put it in the newspapers all the time. Um, I I know exactly what questions I'm going to get at the end. Um, But with Americans, the the amount of familiarity with with British English and and with Britain more generally is, is more varied. But a lot of people's ideas, a lot of people's anglophilia is rooted in an England that I don't actually know, right? So, it, you know, it's in grassy manor houses, right? With people who have servants. People who have servants rather than the servants, right? It's, it's the people who have servants that people are mostly watching. Um, versus, this is where I live. This is, this is average English life. Um, and I do like to show that picture to people that say it's not all a green and pleasant land. It's, it's a highly uh, urbanized land. Um, my, the ideas that people in America have about England often come in this form. I have yet to meet an English child, an English boy who wears knee socks and Peter Pan collars and yet the, you see an awful lot of them in the in the American press. Um, And when you look into what are the stereotypes that American people have of British people, it is of being educated, being highly educated, despite the fact that America had higher literacy than Britain since 1800, despite, well, they had achieved it by then, despite the fact that America has higher rates of higher education, that they did compulsory schooling earlier, all these sorts of things, we stereotype Britain as being better educated than we are and therefore, when you hear the accent, you think, or when you hear a particular accent or set of accents, that's that's where people's minds go. So, you know, highly, highly, highly intelligent people, so intelligent that they're magical, they might so intelligent they probably don't come from this planet. You know, um, the, the, when you see which, British shows get remade in America rather than imported. It's the ones about average people, right? The Office gets remade. Um, All in the Family was based on a a British show. Sanford and Stone was based on a, a British show. The ones about the working classes and the middle classes, they get remade for American audiences because what American audiences want is the people in the manor house, the highly intelligent people. Um, So this is all a symptom of of a disease that I call AVIC, American Verbal Inferiority Complex. (laughs) And you can monetize AVIC. You can sell mugs. Everything sounds better with a British accent. You can sell buttons the BBC, because terrible news sounds better in a sexy British accent. And my favorite one, the Las Vegas Tourist Board, this is how they advertise their city in the London Underground. Visit a place where your accent is an aphrodisiac. They're pretty much promising you'll get lucky if you, if you come to America. Um, And it it does cost Americans money. Um, I don't know if you saw this news story, maybe it was about two years ago, about this young man in Washington, D.C. who had a British accent, so he went around telling people he was very rich, and then he ordered a $1,200 glass of whiskey and they gave it to him without asking, and he just ran out because everybody, fellow drinkers impressed with his English accent. Recall, recall, recall that he had been regaling them with tales of his life in exclusive Kensington. Um, but no, he was just a kid from Merseyside who who was, you know, out so, you So it pays to be a little bit uh, suspicious of our stereotypes about British English. Meanwhile in Britain, this is a greeting card or greetings card that I bought down the road from my house. So in case you can't see it, it's, hey guys, what can I get you? Some service without the ghostly Americanisms, thank you. And so they're monetizing what I call anti-Americanismism, right, a prejudice against American English. Or, and um, where you have a prejudice, you can usually find a fear People are afraid of American words, they're afraid of them taking over, and I call that <laughs> um, And But the thing that I found in researching this is that it goes further than that. It's not just a phobia. It's, people are properly crazy about American <laughs> English, so I call it Amerilexicosis. It's got various symptoms. I won't go through all of them, but um, the, one symptom is irritability. Right? People get annoyed by Americanisms, and the British press will tell you about it a lot. There's a bit of paranoia. How Americanisms are killing the English language. You know that language that nobody speaks anymore, that's on its last legs, they're being killed. Um, That was a BBC headline from two years ago. Um, And then when you actually read the articles where people are being upset, about Americanisms, it's funny what you find there. In this one, the guy's upset because the news magazine referred to train lines instead of railway lines, a horrid Americanism. Do do Americans say train lines? We say like tracks or the Acela corridor or things like that. But but we do say train in some places where Britain says railway. Um, But his, he then says, "We should. You'll, next thing you know, you'll be writing wind cheater, which is the two words I don't think anyone had ever put together before that point, but he believes this is an Americanism. Now, wind cheater is a British word for a windbreaker, but somehow he's got this back over the ocean and with a different continent. Um, in the Daily Mail, in a long list of very strangely spelt pronunciations, um, They have down that Americans, instead of saying lasso or lasso, we say lasso. Go and lasso up a horse or a dogey or whatever. Um, Everybody, according to them in America, says Iraq instead of Iraq. And everybody says vase, which I don't. I say vase. But but you've got all those kinds of things. Um, Everybody in America does it that way, according to them. And then you've got ones like this. This is The Telegraph. This is an article about how people are complaining to the BBC about hearing more Americans on the radio and television, Americanisms on the radio and television um, out of the mouths of, of British presenters. And so they had a little box in this article with seven Americanisms that people are complaining about. Fess up instead of confess. July 5th instead of July the 5th. Take a look instead of have a look. Ahead of instead of before. And we can just stop there because none of the rest of them are actually American. Um, So face up instead of confront, first used by Daniel Defoe in England. Um, It's a big ask is an Australianism. Um, and it might have been, instead of it might have been, well, of there is a misspelling of the apostrophe V-E, right? It's a, it's a misspelling. Um, but there is a tendency in Britain to think that if people are doing things wrong in language, it's probably because they watch too much American television. <laughs> um, but that's a very easy mistake to make because of the sounds. Um, but who makes it most... That column with GB there. So this is, this, this is data from something called the corpus of, the Glo- corpus of global web-based English. And I looked for what happens when you have of after a modal verb. And you're most likely to have it from people writing in England, in Britain. Um, to give that in a different picture, um, the darker the blue, the more characteristic of a particular country. Uh, particular spelling is, and you can see there that spelling it right is most characteristic of, of America and Britain is the most characteristic misspellers of it. But that hasn't, you know, that you tell people this, these kinds of things it sort of, oh, that's interesting. And then the next thing you know, people are complaining again about, oh, those Americans, they're the reason why our children are saying ain't or whatever other historic thing that they think. But you can see why I I understand why people are worried. You know, it's your language. You don't want to see it change. Everywhere, people get uptight about language change. And what's happening here is language is changing, and they're looking for an enemy and uh, uh, someone to blame it on. And it's never that simple. But, you know, they are afraid of being wiped out. Uh, uh, The Americanization of Britain is going to, you know, make Britain. Um, un So, the thing about that is, yes, Americanisms have been very, very, very influential around the world, um, but I am very, very confident that you will still be able to tell the difference between British and American English for as long as there's a Britain and an America. Because language is how we identify ourselves. It it might not be the same way they're different now, but, but they will continue to differ. So are we losing our differences? Mostly not. Our accents are becoming more different all the time. So vowels are moving all over the place in both countries in different regions and nowhere are they converging. Okay? Same thing with most consonant changes. In terms of spelling, everybody was worried that when spell check came in that everybody would have to spell American because Microsoft came from Washington and you know Apple came from California. Um, but what's happened instead is a sort of backlash against things that are perceived as American spellings. So spelling realized or recognized with a Z instead of an S is something that is the top choice, the top spelling in Oxford dictionaries. That's the, the spelling they prefer. It's part of what's called Oxford spelling. Yet in Britain that spelling has gone through the floor since spell checkers came into existence. In part because people were saying, I don't want this spell checker telling me what to do. (laughs) And in part because spell checkers like consistency. It used to be the case that in British you could spell it either way. But computers want you to spell it one way. Um, So the two of those now means that my students believe that it's illegal to use a Z, (laughs) or a Z as they'd say. In these words that you would be American if you did, Um, but their grandparents used them very, very happily. Okay, in terms of vocabulary, yes vocabulary goes back and forth a lot, Um, but this is from a book published in 1964 um, about, you know, obviously these words are going to come from America and take over. Movie, elevator, canned, meet up with. And Today in Britain people are saying movie a bit but they're still saying film and they're still saying film more than they say movie because for them movie you'd use for something that came out of Hollywood you wouldn't use it for, you wouldn't say television movie you'd say a film on television you know it it has its own job people still say lift in fact there have been a lot of lift uh, sightings in um, America these days. It's become a trendy word to use in America. You still buy tin tomatoes and you still meet people. And there are still people 55 years later writing newspaper columns about everybody saying, meet up with, now we have to make sure that this Americanism doesn't come over. Well, it's been trying for 55 years (laughs) and it it has not met with much success. This is another book that was published shortly before my book was published. I love it, but I'm not gonna recommend it unless you really like to read about the um, advantages and disadvantages of different statistical methods for use with uh, linguistic corpora. But what this guy, his name is Paul Baker, He, instead of saying, are people saying movie more now? Yes, they're saying movie more now. Oh no, the American. Um, He went through and asked a computer to find the words that were most characteristic of um, British text and American text in four time periods from the 1930s to now. And he found that way by not leading the question that our our, um, vocabularies are still very distinct. They're not the same as they were in 1931, but they're not the same here. And part of that is because even when we do bring over new words in either direction, they get their own lives. So McDonald's came over to America and brought fries. And now you regularly see this on British menus that you have a choice between chips and fries. And what they mean is the chips are the traditional British kind that are thick and the fries are like the ones at McDonald's that are skinny. So fries doesn't mean the same thing in Britain as it means in America. It's its vocabulary has been enriched in a way and it's uh, pub menus have been complicated. Okay, and similarly when scone came over here it became all sorts of different things that British people would not recognize. So this is this is the slide that gets gasps of horror when I when I present it in England. That you know that's a scone on the left, right? What's this icing doing on it? What are these flavors? Oh my goodness! So so even when we get more similar, we often invent new differences. Um, are fewer differences arising? Probably fewer are arising naturally because, in, in a lot of areas, because we're not, we are in a global economy now, right? So something gets invented, it gets shipped all over the world immediately, it's got instructions with it that have labels on them, we have the same words for things. You think that, and then you look at, you try to rent a phone in the other country, and you know, you might know it's it's, Mostly cell phone here, mostly mobile over there. But also, you just try to get a plan for to use your phone. The entire vocabulary of how you pay for your phone service is different in the two places. So you know there are still new differences coming up. So to sum up, um, we have our our. Um, want would call it, stereotypes of each other. So what Americans think the British are like, good afternoon sir, Fancy spot of tea madam. What the British think Americans are like, I'll have 100 cheeseburgers for free because I rock in a Diet Coke and a shotgun. Um, but this is what we're really like. We look a lot the same on the surface. This is what British and American English are like. They're a lot same on the surface. We can talk to each other. But you dig a little bit deeper and you see that there are actually differences. The British person is going, Oh, what's that Z Zed doing in real eyes? And the American is going, Oh, I've got to pay medical bills. (laughs) And I will end on a British pun. Thank you very much.